Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor James Crossland about a wonderful book he published with Manchester University Press. The book is called The Rise of Devils, Fear and the Regions of Modern Terrorism. Uh, Dr. James Crossland is an associate professor in, in international history at Liverpool John Morris University, and he's the author of War, Law, and Humanity, the Campaign for Control, Warfare, 1853-1914. to And today he'll be talking to us about this book, The Rise of Devils. James, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, to start with, can you briefly introduce yourself, tell us about your expertise, and more importantly, why you decided to write a book about the origin of modern terrorism? Yeah, so I... Um... I started working on this period, the late 19th century, for my uh, last book, which actually mentioned was um, uh, War, Law, and Humanity, which looked a lot at uh, networks and communication, particularly amongst people who were trying to uh, avert the the next world war, uh, which obviously they failed to do. But when I was looking at the means by which people bounced ideas around the world at this time, I um, very much stumbled upon the 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 way in which radical politics was accelerating quite a bit in the late 19th century. And through that, I started reading more about uh, the first terrorist wave, let's call it, in the uh, 1880s and 1890s. There was principally an anarchist terrorist wave and how it was a transnational phenomenon. And it sparked in me an interest that really went back to... um, to be honest, the morning of September 11th, 2001, when I remember that there was this constant refrain during both the aftermath of that attack and the, and the years that followed this idea that we've we've never been here before. We, we've never seen this, this global terrorist threat before. We've never seen uh, a war on terrorism before. This was something that a lot of journalists um, and a lot of pundits like to put out there. And at the time, I remember thinking that just doesn't seem right to me. This this doesn't seem that unprecedented. And um, as I say, it took a, a good couple of decades for me to finally get around to sitting down and actually thinking about it and, and writing a book. And I started looking into the anarchist terrorist wave and realized that actually it, it even goes back further than the anarchists. And that if you think about the late 19th century holistically and you look at uh, political violence and how it emerges in a number of countries and the forms in which the violence takes, you realize that actually there there was a, a, a pretty significant uh, wave of terrorism in the late 19th century, and there was indeed a, a war on terror fought um, towards the end of that period as well. And I really wanted to get into um, that, and I wanted to in particular examine the means by which the information, the knowledge of who was committing terrorist attacks, why they were committing them, by what means they were committing them, was bounced around the world. Because I think that that knowledge was really key to people emulating each other and and terrorism uh, spreading as a consequence. 
Uh, right. And yeah, you were absolutely right. It, I, I, I was, I guess, around, I don't remember, 19, 18 or 19 years old when that, when September 11 happened. And uh, I still remember those headlines and how, you know, we've never been before. This is unprecedented. So what reading your history, your book was really eye-opening for me. There's a key figure in this book. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Felice Orsini. Uh, Felice Orsini. Yeah. Felice Orsini. Yeah. Can you tell us who he was and how did his ideas spread across Europe and the United States? Because when I read the book, you keep coming back to this figure and it just shows how influential he was. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, you're right. I do position Orsini as a really significant figure because to my mind, he was the progenitor in many ways of this age of terror. And I go so far as to argue that he he is the man who commits the first modern terrorist act in uh, 1858, which, as you, as you mentioned, has this, has this wide-reaching uh, impact. So Orsini was an Italian nationalist. Um, he decided in about 1857 that he was going to assassinate Emperor Napoleon III of France with the idea that Napoleon's death would create a sort of domino effect of political outcomes that would lead eventually to the Italian peninsula being unified. Italy was not a unified state at this time, and that was Orsini's ultimate uh, political aim. Now, obviously, there's been regicides throughout history, emperors and kings being being killed. But what was unique about this was Orsini, rather than just simply trying to shoot or stab uh, Napoleon III, decided that he would invent a new improvised explosive device, or IED, for the purpose. And this came to be known as the Orsini bomb. And the reason why this is significant is because the Orsini bomb was a um, percussion-detonated shrapnel grenade. So percussion-detonated means that if you throw it against a hard surface, it, it um, explodes upon impact, so you don't need to light a fuse. That means that it's very easy to transport, uh, which indeed it was. It was it was the Orsini bombs used in this attack were were built in Britain. They were transported to France uh, via Belgium without anyone suspecting them. Uh, they were easy to assemble. Uh, there were a team of four bombers uh, brought together by Orsini, which included himself. Uh, and in January 1858, they tried to uh, kill Napoleon by throwing these bombs at his carriage as it was pulling up to the Paris theater. Now, this is the other part that's significant. Not only are they trying to kill uh, the Emperor Napoleon III with shrapnel grenades, which is a pretty strange way to um, carry out a targeted killing. Shrapnel is by its nature indiscriminate. But they deliberately throw these grenades at a point when Napoleon's carriage is is swarmed by Parisians who've come out to see the emperor. So they are carrying out this attack knowing full well that they are going to um, hurt and indeed kill innocent bystanders, which they do. There are eight people die and about 150-odd are wounded in the attack. Napoleon himself survives because, as I say, the, the, the ordinance say they decided on um, the, the weapon was inappropriate, really, for the task. Of assassination, but it was as a terrorist weapon. It was very significant because the you can imagine the scenes of chaos. A, a number of bombs go off in a crowded space. The shrapnel flying everywhere. The, it creates horrifying scenes, and they grab headlines across the world because of this. And I argue in the book that Orsini wanted this. He he wanted um, media attention. He wanted 
some sort of recognition for the Italian nationalist cause, and he wanted ultimately to strike fear across Paris and indeed across Europe. He was he was uh, one of the generation of nationalists and revolutionaries who were opposed to the the sway that emperors held across Europe. And I think by targeting Napoleon, who was probably the the premier um, uh, emperor in Europe at the time, he was sending a message to other heads of state that anyone armed with this weapon could get at you. And that lesson was really informative to a whole generation of radicals, not just nationalists, but nihilists, socialists, and anarchists down the line, who all tended to maud Orsini and hold him up. Something that, that was kind of lost in the history books for a long time, but only in recent years has, has come out through not just my research, but research of others, that Orsini really did have this transnational influence um, everywhere from, from Russia to, to the United States. There were radicals of various ideological persuasions who who thought that this guy was onto something. They, they this idea that you could use a couple of bombs to terrorize an emperor and indeed a whole country um, that was significant. That really was the essence of of terrorist thinking that came out of that, which, as I say, was widely embraced. And uh, just as you mentioned, it was very influential. And there, there there's this phrase that you use. Uh, that came to be known, Orsini warfare, and it spread to Russia. And there you talk about some uh, how how term of terrorism as a tactic was adopted, and you talk about uh, uh, some people in Russia. I, I, I'm, again, I might be butchering their names. Narat Na, Naratnaya, Rasparava. Anyway, I'll leave it to you to talk yeah. about this section of the book. <laughs> it's, it's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's uh, it can be difficult. So. Narodnaya um, uh, or People's Revenge, is is one of a number of of nihilist groups that emerge in the in the eighteen sixties uh, and through to the eighteen eighties. Now, nihilism was a uniquely Russian ideology, uh, at least in its violent form, in that it was it was basically um, an ideology that was built around the notion of stripping the Russian state of all of its existing. Uh, edifices, that being uh, Zardom, the church, um, the the general structures of the state, and and starting again, and sort of wipe, wiping the slate clean and, and creating a, a new Russia. And at the heart of the idea of the nihilists, at least the, those inclined to violence, was murdering the Tsar, because if you if you cut off the head of the the, the snake, the the body dies. It was that sort of theory. And. Um, the People's Revenge, Narodnaya they they were um, led by a fellow by the name of Zergai Nechev, who was a very influential uh, terrorist thinker, more influential than I think he's often given credit for. Um, and he, as I say, was was one of a number of nihilists who who kind of got terrorism, for want of a better term, and and the notion that you could use um, not only not only bombs but but the, the the threat of, of some kind of subversive organization to try to terrorize the powers that be. And this really built on the 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 outcome of Orsini's um attempt on, on Napoleon's life about a decade earlier, because in the reportage on Orsini, the word conspiracy uh was used uh quite quite often and this there was this idea here floating around that he was the, the spearhead of this wider international conspiracy against um the, the heads of state across Europe, which what wasn't 
wasn't necessarily true. He did have a number of international um, partners, uh, mostly Britons and, and uh, a Frenchman who, who helped him out with the plot. But to say there was some kind of you know grand underground conspiracy was uh, perhaps a bit of hyperbole. But that idea was something that Jeff really bought into. Um, so he was looking at, I guess, the propagandizing of terrorism. But there was another terrorist, uh, another nihilist group at this period in Russia that was directly influenced by Orsini and particularly his bomb. And that was a group uh, that was simply called Hell, which is uh, one of the more blunt uh, names for a terrorist organization you're ever going to find. And they were um, led by a fellow called uh, Nikolai Shutin, who was obsessed with the idea that to kill the Tsar, you needed the Orsini bomb, so much so that he actually dispatched one of his um, acolytes to Geneva with the idea uh, that there that was where you could find blueprints for the Orsini bomb and people who could tell you how to wage, as you say, Orsini warfare, which to define that term, that term was actually um, coined, I believe, in the Freeman's Journal, which was uh, an Irish uh, Athenian, um, uh, uh, well, I do had some Fenian leanings um and it it's testament to how widely uh, as i say orsini's ideas spread that you have irish republicans talking about the orsini way of of warfare as well um and it's it's that significance that 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 really comes through it is really understood in russia as as being what we would recognize today as terrorism, uh, using asymmetrical warfare, using innovative weapons to try to um, uh, use, use to attack specific targets with the idea of, of striking fear. That was what Orsini, what, what the radicals of this era meant when they referred to Orsini warfare. Um, and Shutin, as I say, was, was one of the, the many Russian nihilists, along with Nechev, who, who bought into this idea. Unfortunately for him, um, when he his his um, uh, disciple was sent to Geneva, he found out that there there were no blueprints for the Orsini bomb, and they couldn't get access to it. So the hell never got themselves an Orsini bomb. Nechev's campaign kind of fell apart uh, because of his own well, megalomania and recklessness, to be honest. Um, so these these. This first generation of, of violent Russian nihilists in the 1860s, they didn't really get anywhere, but they nonetheless took on board the ideas that, as I as I argue in the book, Orsini really uh, really pioneered. And and that was uh, and uh, Volya himself was a very significant and influential person in the development of modern terrorism in the time fix that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about the invention of the dynamite? You talk about dynamite, you know fueling a whole new wave of uh, revolutionary acts of violence. Yes. So uh, perhaps the best way to think about it is the Orsini bomb provides a proof of concept for how uh, uh, someone disempowered in terms of their, their military capacity, someone who doesn't have military training, someone who doesn't have access to firearms, but can nonetheless put together an, an IED, can... Um, level the playing field as it were with with states and with their emperors and 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 so forth dynamite builds on that on that premise because what dynamite provided uh when it was patented in in the mid 1860s was uh, yet another form of explosive that was pretty uh cheap um quite transportable 
And like, unlike the Orsini bomb, it was actually a lot more of a stable and explosive. The Orsini bomb, um, uh, the, the actual explosive material in it could sometimes be a bit problematic. Whereas, um, uh, dynamite was a, as I say, a more stable component, uh, compound. It was also quite readily available because when dynamite was first patented, uh, by Alfred Nobel, the idea was to use it, uh, in mining operations. It was meant to blast rock so that you could, um, you know, uh, create tunnels for railways or, or, you know, uh, carve out, um, uh, quarries, things like that. And so dynamite could be found on building sites. So all you had to do was get a job at a building site really, um, and put some in your pocket and off you went. And it became very, very quickly adopted by the same kind of people who had adopted the Orsini bomb in uh, uh, years prior. It took a while until dynamite was being widely used. I, I'd say it probably wasn't until about uh, the late 1870s that it really starts taking hold of, of um, terrorist imaginations. And there's one particularly notorious anarchist of the era who, who calls it the proletariat's artillery. And that really tells you everything you need to know about how it was perceived and how it was held up as this 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 uh, amazing material that could somehow give uh, disempowered radicals the kind of the kind of power that that states with standing armies had. So it was both a very useful form of explosive in a practical sense, and it was also iconic in a way. It 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 it, it had this evocative um, appeal for um for particularly anarchists, but also it was used by the next generation of Russian nihilists and indeed a variety of other uh, radical groups during this period. And and uh, what was Finia and Dynamite War and how, what kind of response did it generate in, in, in England? Yeah, so the Finian Dynamite War is uh, a significant part of my story in Rise of Devils because it really is the first concerted terrorist campaign on British soil, which kicks off in 1881 and runs through until about 1885 1886 depending on how you want to um to look at it and what it what it was was the the culmination of a good couple of decades of irish republican uh thinking about how to move the the struggle for irish independence forward um and home rule in particular forward uh using political violence now there'd been some some hit and miss attempts before in the 1860s famously Fenians based in the United States had attempted to invade Canada as a means of putting pressure on the British Empire that had ended um, in a, a bit of a fiasco there'd been attempted uprisings um, using uh, pretty ill-coordinated forces in uh, various parts of Ireland and, and northern England um, in uh, the mid, mid to late 1860s as well 1870s and so by the time you get to the end of the 1870s, as I say, dynamite's coming to the fore and there's this new way of thinking, particularly amongst Fenian groups in the United States about embracing dynamite uh, as, as a means of, of, of striking back against Britain. And they're informed, it should be said at this time, by another campaign that's uh, occurring in Russia, which starts in 1879 when another group of nihilists Narodnaya uh, they were called uh, the People's Will. They start a dynamite campaign against uh, Tsar Alexander II, which is much more successful than that of the the nihilists of the 1860s. They actually 
detonated quite a number of bombs and eventually they they killed the Tsar himself in uh, in March 1881. So this is all happening at about the same time that the Finians are also planning their own attacks. And when this dynamite war kicks off at uh, the start of 1881, it does so in... in uh, a reasonably unspectacular fashion, and a big part of that is because the early uh, IEDs that they use are generally gunpowder-based, and a lot of them are not particularly powerful. Um, so when the press gets hold of the, the starts picking up that there's Fenian attacks occurring across Britain, the initial response is actually, well, this is all a bit, you know, a bit of a joke. We shouldn't be too worried. But then, after a couple of months, dynamite devices start appearing. Uh, and in particular, there's a cache of um, uh, dynamite-charged, um, uh, timed bo timed uh, IEDs, uh, so they've got clockwork uh, timing on them, uh, that are uncovered on board a ship in Liverpool. And that really sparks a wave of fear in, in Britain, and the authorities realize that the Finians are now very well armed, and you get a spate of attacks. There's about 15 or so in total over the course of the, the dynamite war, and these attacks are on police stations. They're on uh, the London Underground gets bombed. The gas works is bombed. There are attempts to blow up um, uh, houses of West, uh, uh, Westminster. There's uh, an attempt on London Bridge, if I recall. There's a number of attacks in pretty significant locations. Not too many people die. Only about five, six people die. The idea is not to kill people. It's to create fear. That's the, the principal aim. And in the in many respects, it's a kind of prototype for the the sorts of terrorist attacks uh, or terrorist campaigns that occur in the in the twentieth century and beyond, where you've got a, a, a group with a with a, a stated political goal using a, a a wave of mostly soft target bombings to try to create a sense of anxiety and fear that brings politicians to the negotiating table. Um, so it's a really significant campaign campaign in Britain, and it has a number of impacts, not the least of which being that it leads to the foundation of uh, Britain's first counterterrorism force, which is Special Branch, formed in 1883. You also get the rise of some innovative counterterrorism measures, and I talk a, a lot about this this fellow in Rise of Devils because I think he's he's very he's been forgotten by history, but he's very important. When it comes to understanding the first um, war on terror, there's a man by the name of Colonel Vivian Magendi, who was an explosives expert who actually, during the Dynamite War, pioneers a number of techniques for what today we would call bomb disposal. Uh, he actually founds the first real bomb disposal squad based at Scotland Yard, and he, he pioneers things like explosives forensics. He, he diffuses a number of bombs. He picks them apart. He learns how to recognize them. And he's really a, a very influential figure in, in uh, reconceptualizing how police look at uh, terrorism as a, as a crime and how they look at things like like uh, bomb disposal. So it does have a number of, of quite wide-ranging impacts, the uh, the Finian dynamite war. And, and there was another important character, Johan Most, uh, that you discuss in the book. And... Uh... He, he advocated terrorism, and his advocacy was also influenced by socialist and anarchist views. Uh, can you tell us who he was and what his views of terrorism were? 
Yes. Uh, so Johann Most is a really fascinating figure. And as you say, I, I spend a, a fair bit of time with him in the book. He, he pops up quite a bit. And you kind of have to when writing a, a history of terrorism in this period because he he, he really is everywhere, For uh, particularly in the 1880s, um, uh, which is a crucial decade as, you, as a sort of uh, conveying for, for terrorism writ large because you have the Naradavolia's campaign in Russia, um, which which ticks on until about 1883. You have the the Dynamite War, and then you have Most, who starts life as a uh, socialist politician in Russia, uh, sorry uh, Germany, uh, and he's actually a member of the Reichstag for a time. He becomes too radical for the tastes of his uh, political um, uh, comrades, and he ends up basically being hounded out of uh, Germany for being just too militant, too violent. He winds up in Britain where he starts publishing uh, a magazine called Freiheit, which uh, means freedom. And it's it's a radical magazine in which he, he extols the virtues of um, uh, violence as a form of political action. And he starts leaning into a more anarchist way of thinking Uh, that's uh, a lot more militant and radicalized than his, his previous socialist beliefs. And he gets into a lot of trouble when, as I say, in 1881, uh, Narodna Volia managed to kill Tsar Alexander II on the streets of St. Petersburg. They, he's killed by via a suicide bomber who, to tie all this together, is armed with what is effectively an Orsini bomb. However, it's fueled by dynamite. And this guy rushes at the, the, the Tsar um uh smashes into him and uh, the bomb detonates and then the the czar dies and so does the bomber and this is a an international um uh, spectacular this terrorist attack it's um it's akin to the 9/11 of its day in terms of the 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 kind of press coverage it gets and the fear it creates across much of the world and most picks up on this and he runs an article in Freiheit saying well isn't this wonderful you know basically uh it's great that the that the czar's dead and let's have some more of this you know let's have more emperors dying in this way and that gets him into a lot of trouble as you can imagine um uh even in britain where there had been a pretty loose attitude towards um this kind of incendiary talk in, in decades gone by most really pushes that envelope too much And eventually he's, he's, he has to, uh, uh, leave Britain and he, he winds up in the United States where he can preach that kind of incendiary violence, uh, more openly because of the, the value of free speech and, and, and so forth. He reestablishes Freiheit there and he really develops a reputation amongst the anarchist communities, particularly of the, the East coast, East seaboard as, um, this, this very influential, well-connected guy. He gives um, interviews to journalists, and it's really quite interesting how the journalists play along with him. Um, you know, they 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 like to talk about him being the king killer and being this this grand, you know, preacher of dynamite terrorism, and and they they, they for want of a better term, they love him. You know, they 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 love the sensationalism that he brings. Um, and they they love interviewing him and, and hearing him talk these wild uh, wild talk about uh, using dynamite to to uh, change the world, and it's 
it's one of the many parallels I draw with today and how people who, who go out and, and say the most sort of heinous things in a public forum, who try to rile people up, tend to get the most press attention. Um, and it's this kind of very unhealthy symbiotic relationship that exists between between uh, media and, and, and social commentators. And Most really taps into that. Um, he, he understands that that same dynamic that's at play today in, in our media. He understood that back in the 1880s. He knew how to work the press to build his own profile and to build support for his cause. He gives a number of lecture tours where he, he extols the virtues of anarchism, revolution, violence, bombs. Um, and as, as a consequence, he gets tied to a number of terrorist attacks during this period. Um, including most notoriously of all the, the Haymarket bombing of 1886 in Chicago, which is a, a very significant um, uh, terrorist incident in, in America's history. But he also gets tied to to bombings in, in or attempted bombings in Germany, um, as well as uh, in Switzerland, and assassination attempts in Switzerland. He's seen as, in, in short, this guy who's kind of controlling what the press by the mid-1880s is starting to conceive of as a, a global anarchist conspiracy. And this is one of the, the things I really uh, pick up on in, in Rise of Devils and kind of chronicle the development of, is this idea, which is, to go back to what I was saying about Orsini, how the word conspiracy gets thrown around a lot to explain his attack on Napoleon, that idea really develops quite rapidly um, through 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 fake news, through assumptions, through through lackadaisical reportage, through through fear and anxiety, into this notion which is really hardened by the 1880s that terrorist attacks across the world are all being coordinated, that they're part of some global underground, and most, to the mind of some, is seen as one of the one of the key leaders of this this global underground, even though. We know now that it didn't work like that. Uh, Most wasn't issuing orders for terrorists to attack in, in this country or that country, either side of the Atlantic. But he was putting, as you say, sort of hate speech out there, or what today we would call hate speech, dangerous ideas out into the world, which impressionable uh, people were hearing and and following uh, and, and, and self-radicalizing uh, via. Um, so it's very... It's a very contemporary story in many ways. It's the sort of stuff that um, continues to happen to this to this day, where someone goes out there, says some some incendiary stuff, and just waits for others who are more disposed to act on on those kind of words to uh, to carry out their deeds. And uh, that was a dynamic that I think Most understood pretty well. It was quite fascinating how the techniques that we nowadays use with the rise of social media, just like you said, were, were pretty much common, or if not common, were, were actually did happen um, like a century ago. So it just goes to show how much our reporting or our conception of ideas of terrorism or hate speech hasn't really changed that much. No, no not at all. And I think, I think that the, I mean, obviously, Things are accelerated now. Things move faster and they're more multifaceted because social media is is so instantaneous because there are so many elements to it. But yes, you're right. The basic principles of, of information dissemination were really being figured out at this time. And 
Most is one of a number of figures that I chronicle in the book who I think understand this. Um, they don't perhaps understand it to the to the extent that you know um, people today do because it's obviously grown more sophisticated. But the basic idea that you go out there, you say a few a, f- a few key phrases, a few leading statements, a few um, you know nefarious suggestions, and you know that there's people who will pick it up. And uh, yeah, as I say, this was not just Moss. This was a, a very much a, a transnational phenomenon during this period. Mm. Now we have talked about uh, terrorism. Let's talk about the police reaction to uh, to these acts of terrorism. Yeah. What sorts of measure did police chiefs employ to counter terrorism? And you have you have a number of police chiefs that you talk about: Wilhelm Stiber, William Melville. Can you talk about uh, the, let's say, the counterterrorism measures that were put into place? Yeah. So, um, Stibbers, uh, well, Stibbers, an interesting, really interesting guy, and I, I use him at, at the start of the book actually to kind of frame the, the mindset of the police during this period because he was, um, he was a Prussian, uh, spy master police chief who was who was active. Really, his heyday was kind of just before this period, so it's kind of like the the eighteen fifties into the eighteen sixties, and he, nonetheless, is very influential because a he sees radicalism as a transnational problem. Um, he's particularly obsessed with Karl Marx, uh, and with and with the idea of a global communist conspiracy, and b he was. Uh, a paranoid conspiracy theorist, uh, to put it bluntly, and he really is the is the guy who puts this idea out amongst the police. He's not the only one, but he is perhaps one of the more influential police chiefs of this period who puts out this idea that any kind of radical politics, wherever it flares up, uh, from from St. Petersburg to Barcelona, London, Paris, New York, doesn't matter where, it's all part of the same thing. They're they're all talking to each other. There is this global underground, and and we need to to contain it, basically, uh, if not eradicate it. And that's Stieber's view, and it's very influential on police chiefs uh, that come uh, arise after he's he's really had his heyday. He dies, I think, in eighteen eighty two from memory. Um, and but by that time, his ideas are really firmly entrenched. And there's there's a number of of police chiefs who really pick up on this um there's uh, a fellow called andrew who um in, in france who emerges uh, louis andrew who emerges as the prefect of paris police uh, after the um, paris commune who really leans into this idea as a means of of trying i think to 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 bolster his police force quite a bit um so he's, he's somewhat cynical about it, but then there's others who are both cynical and I think believers in the conspiracy theory. And one of the the, the key figures is is a man called Peter Rakovsky, who is the head of the Okhrana, the the Russian secret police. Um, and he really is Stephen's spiritual successor in that he conceives of this idea that there's a, a global radical conspiracy. He uses that fear of that to bolster his police forces. And he picks up on a lot of the the techniques that Stieber had pioneered in his own time and, and embraced in his own time to try to infiltrate these groups um, using double agents, using agent provocateurs, people who will go into groups and then encourage them 
to be more violent, to carry out specific terrorist attacks with the idea of entrapping them. Um, he also uses fake news, which is an interesting one um, that, that Stieber dabbled in, this idea of you, of establishing state-run uh, newspapers and, and, and magazines that will put out radical ideas um, ostensibly as if they were being published by anarchists or nihilists or socialists or whoever. But within the articles themselves in these magazines, there would be some some disruptive ideas. There would be, um, for example, attempts to sow dissent between various socialists and various anarchists to disrupt the movement. It's quite a sophisticated way of, of, of running things that was that occurred in a number of, of, of states during this period in terms of trying to disrupt the ideas within the, the, the so-called um, uh, conspiracy. But in a more pragmatic sense, um, Rakowski is is very good at at infiltrating radical groups um, uh, using it paid informers. This is something that is also really significant in the aforementioned Dynamite War in in, in Britain, where uh, paid informers within the Fenians ranks are are a, a big part of the counterterrorism push, which along with, as I mentioned before, Colonel Majendi's um, more sort of forensic measures. Uh, really lead to this this development of a of a I wouldn't go as far as to call it a template, but but a, a system of ideas for how to a, approach any kind of terrorist threat. You infiltrate the organization or the or the movement with or with uh, double agents uh, with spies. You you find weak links in the chain of the organizations and you pay them to inform. Um, use agent provocateurs to to bring them out and to get them to commit acts so that you can um, uh, launch mass arrests. And where possible, you try to get press attention on your efforts to, for want of a better term, control the narrative and and make it seem like there there isn't so much something to fear that the police are in control of the situation. And this is something that another key figure of this period, uh, a man by the name of Sir William Belville, is really quite adept at. Uh, Melville uh, works for Scotland Yard. He, um, and a special branch, he becomes a, a really key figure in not only the the struggle against Fenianism in Britain, but also against anarchism. And he's, he's really big on making sure the public know that he's out there fighting the good fight, as it were, against the anarchists. He, why he's it. He likes he likes the limelight for want of a better term. He likes to know that he is um he is out there protecting the people of Britain, and it's it's a it's a it's a form of propaganda in many ways. He's trying to propagandize his, his crusade against terrorism, which was something Stieber did back in the the fifties and sixties to um, create this idea that the state is protecting its people and can protect its people against uh, against terrorism so again so much of this stuff is is very contemporary um ideas of narratives ideas of, of using the media um to 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 gain publicity for counterterrorism uh, um initiatives um and everything down to the forensics of Magendi. it's all it's all very um reminiscent of of the kinds of techniques that that um are still used to this day in counterterrorism, and this, as I argue in Rise of Devils, is really the formative period uh, for this this conception of counterterrorist policing. And with the rise of uh, Marxism, for example, International Working Men's Association, the 
police was so much gripped by conspiracy theories, the press and the political understandings of the first age of terror. What was the reason behind that? Because as you mentioned in the book, it wasn't like the whole, there was this orchestrated effort to, 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 to stage some acts of violence across all the Europe, but that seemed to be something that the police firmly believed in. Mm. What was the source of these conspiracy theories? Well, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, in many ways, it, it predates this this period. Um, you can go right back to the aftermath of the the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, uh, right after eighteen fifteen, when when this idea that there will be some kind of second grand revolution is is really it really takes hold of a lot of of, of police and and um, and figures of authority across Europe, and that there's there's the the nature of revolution is itself an international um, phenomenon, and this is, is sort of borne out in some way to the minds of people who think that way. When in 1848 you get a, a spate of revolutions across Europe, which all seem to happen relatively simultaneously, and that reconfirms this idea, certainly to the mind of, of Wilhelm Stieber, who's really influenced by the revolutions of 1848 and driven to this notion that. Well, yes, obviously, all these radicals must somehow be um, talking to each other. So there's something inherent in the conception of revolution at this time that makes that draws police to thinking that it must be coordinated. And as you say, the International Working Men's Association is is almost provides a proof of concept for that. So when that's established in uh, 1864, if I remember correctly, um, you you have. This this coming together of a communist international, which is is pledging to unite the workers of the world, and that idea for for people like Wilhelm Stieber, they just look at that and say, well, obviously I'm right. You know, I've been saying for years that all of these radicals, these people who are opposed to the to the world and the the, the state in which it's in, um, that that they're all talking to each other, they want to be an international force. Well, here it is that you know the the first communist international. The fact that the IWMA is not you know specifically involved in terrorist activity, it has a few bad apples within it, without question. But it's it's not, and Marx certainly doesn't go around endorsing um, the the kind of uh, he, he, you know he he's not a fan of Johann Most. Um, he's not a fan of of uh, various other figures in the book who. Arise during this period to to preach uh, political violence because he's smart enough to see that actually it damages the cause. If you go out there and you say, "Well, we need to hack off the heads of emperors and but detonate bombs in in public spaces," then you you're kind of delegitimizing your 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 ideology and your your political goals. And Marx is 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 rather cognizant of that um, uh, for the most part, but that doesn't matter because. The fact that this organization exists, it really, it, it provides grist to the mill for conspiracy theorists. And what's particularly erroneous about this, and this is something I, I spend a bit of time in the book covering, is how far this leads the police astray. Because when when you get the emergence of, of anarchist terrorism as a global phenomenon, really, from the late 1880s, 1890s, this assumption a widely held assumption is that, as I say, all these anarchist attacks are coordinated. And the reason why it's assumed so is because fundamentally the police are not that interested um, in 
differentiating between communists, anarchists, nihilists, whoever. They're all they're all radicals. They're all part of the same, you know, bothersome group. Is is how they're seen, and that's a fundamental misreading of a, a number of things. Firstly, from an ideological standpoint, you there's a, a significant schism that occurs on on the far left of politics at this time between the followers of Karl Marx who are obviously adherents to socialist Marxism, um, and then the followers of Mikhail Bakunin, who is who is um, uh, the most significant, I would say, anarchist thinker, or one of the most significant of this era. And he and Marx have a falling out that's both ideological and personal about, and on the ideological side, it's, it's very much about what the revolution is meant to look like. And Marx's adherents generally stay away from the kind of political violence and the kind of outright terrorism as we would understand it today that a number of Bakunin's adherents instead start to lean into. And the fact that the the anarchist ideology doesn't lend itself to the kind of organizational structures that Marx is trying to put in place with the IWMA, the fact that a lot of the anarchist violence in the 1880s and 1890s is carried out by individuals what what we we would perhaps call today lone wolves people who are self-radicalized people who, who don't have some central governing body telling them how to think and what to do people who are just reading anarchist magazines and coming up with ideas and hearing words from as i say people like johan most telling them that it would be great if someone bombed this place or killed this king or whatever and that's enough for them the police are very slow to pick up on that it's easier in many respects to fall back on this old idea that, well, people don't don't get self-radicalized and don't just emerge from the shadows and throw bombs. No, no, no. They're, they're directed by some grand conspiracy somewhere. We just need to find out where the conspiracy is and, and, and we'll unravel this whole thing. That idea, false as it is, is, is I think more comforting for the police in some ways uh, than the notion that they're facing this genuinely difficult to detect threats i mean to this day lone wolf terrorism is a, is a difficult thing to to combat because it, it i mean it's perhaps easier today because people leave digital footprints when they're online what they're looking at but even so it is really difficult to 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 know what's in someone's head and back then it was particularly difficult and so that's a big part of the reason i think why the police go for what seems like a comparatively easier option, which is to believe that there's some kind of anarchist IWMA out there, um, which they, they brand at, at certain points that the term anarchist international is actually used to discuss this idea that there's some sort of central governing body directing these attacks. And um, as I say, it really leads to a, 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 a misallocation of, of police resources during this what what is developing into the first real war on terror and and, and the police phone was so firmly confirmed that anarchism was the root of the problem and the root of terrorism and they need to eliminate this ideology if they want to eliminate terrorism right yes um yeah i think because anarchism in kind of in, in many ways sort of represents the the apotheosis of both this long-standing conspiracy theory idea that that there's a global ideology that links all radicals the fact that anarchism itself was taken on board by a, a variety of different 
many different types of people across the world with different grievances who who kind of found in anarchism a, a catch-all for a number of of things that that they felt needed to wrongs that they felt needed to be put right and also i think the fact that that you do because of the the nature of self-radicalization and because in the 1880s and 1890s there's a lot to be radicalized about i mean we're, we're coming off the back of the first great depression of the 1870s there's a lot of unemployment there's a lot of worker agitation there's a lot of unrest we're in the midst of the second industrial revolution and all the anxieties around that the the gap between the haves and have-nots of the world uh in, in the united states and western europe in particular is, is starting to widen and you, it's a very tenuous time and so anarchism is very appealing to a, a number of people and there's a, a quite a number of anarchists i look at in the book who when you actually look at their backgrounds anarchist terrorists when you look at their backgrounds it's they're very similar you know they're they're unemployed angry young men for the most part who are kind of drift into anarchism and 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 let it guide them to violence and i think that because of that because this phenomenon is seemingly so widespread and because anarchism itself is so widely demonized in the press as this godless you know um uh highly destructive and and supposedly highly organized revolutionary ideology um it becomes synonymous with terrorism to the point where when there is finally this this very significant international effort made to uh fight against uh, the terrorist wave in 1898 uh there's a congress held in rome which is called the anti-anarchist congress and it is in effect a, a, an anti-terrorist policing congress attended by police chiefs and politicians from across europe and yet it's branded the anti-anarchist congress because by this time by 1898 anarchism is terrorism that's how it's understood they are they are effectively synonymous to the minds of uh certainly the police but also to to some pretty wide portions of the press as well and um that i think re reflects a, a wider mentality that, that 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 anarchism is by its very nature terroristic even though at this time there is a, another big schism happening in the anarchist movement between those who who want to distance themselves from the kind of individualist terrorism stabbings bombings assassinations etc that have been occurring across europe in the 1890s they want to distance themselves from that and instead focus on the ideology um and then there's the 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 more violently inclined who are saying no this is the only way we can bring on the revolution so the nuances of the fact that there's even a debate within the anarchist movement that's something that is mostly ignored by uh the police uh because to their mind anarchism is terrorism and terrorism is anarchism and uh another really great part of the book that i love was when you talk about how anarchism starts to shift its tactics to towards more collective political action they move away from acts of violence and uh did it um so let's say the rise of terrorist acts were did it uh, did terrorism debate uh, sorry the abate with with transitional anarchism towards collective political action in certain countries yes um there's some countries where the the terrorist wave continues into the the 20th century um uh, Spain, plus South America, 
Um, but then really when we're talking about the, so, so the height of the, the anarchist terrorist wave of the 1890s, the main place for that is probably France, um, which sees a spate of, of, um, quite significant bombings, um, and, and, uh, various other, uh, terrorist attacks, shootings, stabbings, um, French president Zadikano is, is stabbed to death. Um, uh, there's various other um, uh, attacks that occur that really make France the, the seeming epicenter of this anarchist wave. And it's there that the aforementioned debate uh, really comes to the fore between the within the anarchists of you know what are we actually doing here? Are we just simply delegitimizing ourselves every single time one of these? acts of violence occurs and do we need to move towards as you say a more collective action and and something that's that's more constructive rather than destructive and that really does start to come more to the fore towards the end of that decade and into the early uh, uh 1900s and with it you do get an ebbing i think of the 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 enthusiasm let's say for political violence at least in, in, in certain countries, uh, as I say, though, the, the actual concept, and this is something I, I'm at pains to sort of emphasize in Rise of Devils, is that when you actually step back and look at this age of terror, the ideology isn't that important. It's the tactic itself that's important and the fact that the same kind of tactics that the Fenians take on board are the same kind of tactics that the Nihilists take on board. And the anarchists have a sort of all and sundry influence on, on a variety of, of different groups, uh, be they Indian nationalists, uh, uh, Chinese anti-Manchu uh, um, revolutionaries. And in Russia in particular in the early 1900s, you get this absolute um, explosion of terrorist violence uh, that is, I wouldn't say bereft of ideology, but it certainly seems seems very uh, aimless in, in many respects because you have socialists, you have anarchists, you have nihilists, you have, you have communists, you have you have um, on the right, you have sort of anti-Semitic uh, uh, gangs running around uh, committing acts of political violence. And so much of it is is influenced by the anarchist terrorist wave of, of the previous decade. It's the same kind of tactics, it's the same kind of ideas, it's the same kind of bomb making that's at play. And, and this idea of indiscriminate violence to further all kinds of political objectives, it really comes together in Russia. And I spent some time at the end of the book discussing just how that if, if violence ebbs in other countries, certainly it doesn't go away. It it it, it shifts to other areas, and in particular, sort of Russia in the wake of the 1905 loss of the of the war with Japan um, and the revolution that occurs there the first of, of what will be three revolutions in the in the course of in the course of the next uh, uh decade or so um it, it's it's a it's a fissile time in russia let's put it that way and in times of facility in times of 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 anxiety in times of political instability um you get these you get this kind of violence and so russia really is is the place where a lot of these tactics a lot of these ideas um really gestate in the early 1900s so yes anarchist violence does ebb in certain places but the 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 proof of concept for how this form of terrorism uh which is known as propaganda of the deed you know uh it really keeps going in a, in a lot of other places and indeed intensifies 
before we end this conversation, um, is there any other book you're currently working on? Any other projects you're working on? Well, as, as it stands, I have started moving into looking more more widely at uh, counterterrorism during this period. This was a part of the book that, um, simply because there's only so many words you can put into a book, I <laughs> I explored in 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 a certain way, but I don't think I got into in quite enough uh, depth for my liking because there's a such a such a wide ranging story there, and I'm particularly fascinated in by how the kinds of uh, counter counter-terrorist policing um that evolved particularly in the colonial world uh a very sort of violent and 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 paranoid form of counter-terrorist policing I'm, I'm very interested in how that moved into um uh parts of 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 uh, continental europe and britain um and then sort of the policing experiences of the colonies was was informative on on early conceptions of ct and and intelligence and secret policing so i'm I'm starting to work on in 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 that area more broadly, uh, uh, and that will be probably where my research goes next. Yes, uh, Professor James Grassland, thank you very very much for talking to us about your fascinating book. It's uh, it's it was a page turner. I can't emphasize how much I enjoyed this book, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy uh, listening to this podcast and also reading the book. Hopefully, thank you very much, Maury. Been a pleasure. <laughs>